Today on Rebuilders, we are talking about two things, really. First of all, what we've been seeing happening uh, in the world, how God has been moving through his church. Mark, you had the privilege of traveling to the UK, um, being part of the leadership conference in London, um, and also visiting a number of other churches and meeting a bunch of people uh, and are very excited about what what's happening across the world. And also after the events of the weekend, we are going to be talking about Russia. Yes, We cannot miss that opportunity. Uh, but it has been a while since mm. we have been uh, at the microphones and and chatting with you guys and yeah mark just like to throw to you to share a little bit about that yeah well we we intended on being back a while ago Mm. um but um as many of you perhaps know and maybe some of you don't know um as a family we received some quite sort of uh life-changing news um which when i was in london i got a call at the end of my trip um from my wife Trudy, who uh, had been diagnosed with breast cancer, uh, which they're now treating as it's as spread, so mm-hmm. metastasized. Um, so yes, yeah, so it's a, it's been quite a challenging um, thing <laughs> to face, and uh, I just wanted to firstly just uh, thank all of the listeners who have sent in messages. Yeah via email, social media. It's been incredibly humbling to see just people across the world praying for us and holding Mm. us up as a family and Trudy in prayer. Um, And yeah, and it's been literally, you know, I put up something on Instagram and it just, so many people sent message, I lost the ability to get back to everyone. And mm. um, But uh, I just wanted to thank people. It's been incredibly humbling and we have really felt carried in that. Um, so, yeah, so I've had to adjust. And uh, as Trudy has begun treatment now and sort of caring for her, and um, so I'm sort of doing my duties here at Red. Mm. And um, But it pulled back on all my sort of external speaking and um, – other podcasts and stuff like this, but just really wanted to sort of get back into Rebuilders as this is one way which we can sort of contribute um, after having a little bit of a break. So, uh, yeah, I think as I said a couple of years ago when COVID kicked off, this is not going to be an event, it's going to be a journey um, and very much feel that um, for us and our family um, and very much in the midst of it. Um, but, yeah, just wanted to be open. I think we've been really open about yeah. our, our successes but also the difficult times and, and we know that can minister to people. Um, but just wanted to say that up front. Um, and, yeah, if people are asking how to pray, um, you know, I think praying for Trudy, praying for healing, um, praying for the treatment, yeah. praying for our kids and family mm. um, and also just for Red Church. You know, I think as long-term listeners will know, you know, Melbourne went through a uh, long lockdown and, you know, churches all over the world have had difficulty coming out of lockdowns and we've experienced that and went through a difficult season uh, in the last period and then coming into this, it's, it's you know, it's been tough but, you know, God's still moving in the midst of it so keen to talk about those things but just wanted to share that as as we began. Great. Thank you so much, Mark. Well, let's get into the episode. Welcome to Rebuilders. My name is Liddy and I'm here with Mark and Daniel. G'day. How are you both going? Good. Well, can I just say, I think one of the things that we try and attempt to do on this podcast is uh, convince our overseas listeners that, you know, we don't you know, fight snakes every day and live in the outback. <laughs> Is that what we've um, done? That. Um, that's one of our prime objectives. Um, and, you know, that we actually live in a republic of flat whites and, you know, uh, street art. Um, but uh, actually Daniel has just ruined all of that and has spent approximately three weeks. Um, Wrestling snakes. Literally going full crocodile hunter, riding a motorbike. 
through the bush, um, seeing literal, <laughs> seeing literal. Like, did you see a kangaroo killed by a flock of eagles? Is this true? What? Uh, and is it called a flock? A, I don't reckon gaggle. they would be. A gaggle of eagles. They, they would not be a gaggle. I'm going to look up what the collective noun is. Right, I'm already um, over it. Okay, thank you. It's uh, a saw. Oh, a saw. How do you spell that? S O A R. Yeah. Well done. A saw of eagles. Which is interesting. Oh. Also, can be called, oh, hang on. It can also be called a convocation. A convocation. An, isn't that what's like an airy? A R I E. Or even a spread. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, multiple names. So this convocation, this saw, this spread of eagles, were they killing a kangaroo or a wallaby? Uh, this time around, I didn't see them taking down a kangaroo. I have seen them take down kangaroos before. Um, really? But I like did see full them. grown, like oh, yeah, full yeah, yeah. kangaroo. E- like the, the bald, ego, bald eagles over here. No, wedge-tailed eagles. Wedge-tailed eagles. The bald eagles are only in America and I'm... <laughs> And that guy and the Muppets. Remember there was, wasn't there a bald yeah, eagle yeah, yeah. and the Muppets? Yeah, yeah. Wedge tailed eagles. Yeah, they're massive. Like you see the wingspan, it's like two meters across. And so yeah, wow. easy. Few of them take down I've a kangaroo. Never saw heard of I did see them madness. devouring devouring the carcass of a kangaroo. Wow. Um, but you went with. deep. You went deep into Australia's red heart. Yeah, yeah. So I've got just got back last week from a three-week motorbike trip around mm. South Australia, mm. which is my home state, um, and most of it was off-road. So it was wow. through the outback. So if you've got in mind to our listeners, if you in Australia, if you have in mind red dirt, flat, and a big red rock. Which is what they think Australia is. Yeah, that's where I was. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I didn't go, to, didn't go to. You didn't go to the rock. Yalara, but no, didn't make it up there. How um, many snakes did you see? Zero. It's winter, so they're all hibernating. Underground. Yeah. Um, did chase an emu down the road for a bit. That was fun. <laughs> um, plenty, yeah, plenty of roos and heaps of bird bird wildlife. But it's just like I think because I, I was born out that way and lived out that way when in my twenties. Like it's just such a I just find it such a beautiful part of Australia. It's just there's mm. not heaps there, but there's just mm. a a beauty there. There's a just being able to see horizon to horizon, um, see the sunset, sunrise, mm. um, see the weather coming and go. Um, yeah, it's pretty amazing. So, mm. yeah, great. And I came back to Melbourne, which is – it was like every day up there was like 25 degrees and sunny, which for our 77 Fahrenheit and sunny. Mm. Um, come back to Melbourne where it's like 12 degrees and What's that hailing. in Fahrenheit? Yeah. It was 10 – it was uh, like 8 degrees the other day. I think 10, I was coming back from church on Sunday night. It was like, yeah, 8 or something. 10 degrees Celsius is 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. So. Yeah. so, we're in winter. Yeah. Um, yeah. But – Thank you for fully mm. Australianifying our. Uh, oh, it was a rich, yeah. rich experience. Um, Sending the country boy <laughs> back to the country. Oh, my heart's singing. Right, just having days <laughs> yeah. where you don't shower and wear the same yeah, clothes. Okay. Like I'm from the country <laughs> and I enjoy showering every day. Thank no, you. No, I'm all about it. But. I was catching the tube around London. I enjoy that. The yeah. city, you know, planning what coffee stops on the way around a subway <laughs> system. That's that's my that's my <laughs> good time. I went to the Grampians. In, um, oh yeah, yeah. For Bit of hiking. Yep, did some hiking. Yeah, climbed some mountains. It was delightful. It's so nice out there. Oh my yeah. gosh, it's my favorite place. Yeah, favorite yeah. place. Yeah. Anyway, I'm back. We're back. Um, yeah. Australia. Australia, mate. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into some of what we want to talk about today. Yeah. Uh, let's start with what we've been seeing happening. Mm. Um, uh, a number of months ago now, we um, had 
Pete Gregg on talking about Asbury yeah. um, and his experience there. Then uh, we did an episode not long after that about mm. an experience that we had here mm. um, at Red as part of uh, renewal sessions that we were running at the time. And, yeah, again, there's these these spot fires that mm. are still burning away. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really interesting to go to the leadership conference, um, which is put on by Alpha, mm-hmm. Holy Trinity Brompton. And um, some people jokingly call it the Christian UN <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, at the Royal Albert Hall, which is an amazing building. And um, yeah, uh, what I loved was just talking to people from all over the world. And you can do that electronically um, through the internet, but just sitting down with people and and just a sense uh, is really what I picked up. Two things. I think I there is a definite sense that things have changed. Mm. I got that from, you know, talking to people from, you know, all over the place, Malaysia, Canada, you name it, um, that uh, God is doing something new, that things had to change in a way yeah. and that they're sort of moving from one period into a new period and the contours of the new period are not really here. I did just want to say as well, just interrupt my thought for one second, To it was so great to meet a bunch of Rebuilders listeners. Mm-hmm. So thank you to everyone who came up and, um, to again, to be in this place where lots of people around the, real, around the world were and it was just really humbling and reassuring because uh, often we're here in, in you know, our studio on the bottom of the world. Um, but just thank you. Just so great to meet people and and, and mm. thanks for all who said hi. Mm. Um, yeah, so there's definitely a sense that I think we're, we're moving into a new era, but it was just really interesting being at the conference in the sense of like, you know, I got to share the stage with, you know, a, a lady who'd planted a church in a North Korean prison, wow. um, mm. the Bishop of South Sudan. Um, and just different themes. I think, you know, the themes often at conferences have been success and and often, you know, I heard someone say at the conference, you know, in the past the leadership conference would have lots of things from the business world and they had a little bit of that. But um, but it was this sense of God's doing a new thing. It's it's And on the I think it was the night after I spoke, uh, you know, had people share, David Thomas and others, some of the students who'd been at the Asbury uh, outpouring, but it wasn't just about Asbury as much as I think Asbury rather is a manifestation of something that is happening all over the place. Mm. Um, you know, and uh, we had uh, Rob Lim, uh, who uh, is an Aussie who's on staff at Asbury, shared our church um, yeah. last week. And just this this really common sense that God is doing this new thing, that it's, it's humble, it's quiet, um, it's holy, and in some ways, I think part of perhaps what the adjustment many of us are, are finding at the moment is that I think God wants to bring a new equipping, a new empowering, um, but it's adjusting to the contours of it. Yes. You know, it, it's it's interesting when you think about that there's a whole, I think, generation of people who particularly, you know, being in England, which is really, you know, the UK, which has been really touched by, I think, the charismatic renewal, particularly in the sort of 80s and 90s, you know, a particular flavour. You know, part of that was sometimes louder. And, mm. <laughs> you know, you think of English Anglicanism, which, you know, perhaps was, um, uh, I don't want to get into like caricatures and cliches, but, you know, this sort of loudness and the awakening and mm. the sort of moving people out of, I guess, uh, uh, perhaps patterns of the past was something really cool. But it's almost now it's like after a period where things have been very loud, very platform driven, um, uh, you know, very personality, big personality driven. I just think there is this access point to something new and fresh. And I think part of what 
I think God is calling leaders to do at the moment is being aware of what he's doing and aware of the contours of this new move. Because if you can understand mm. the contours, you still can understand how to posture ourselves. I'm interested in what you guys think about too, how you're seeing it playing out here as well. Interestingly, like just as you were talking, it made me think back to a number of episodes that we've done over the past two years where you've been talking about how the world culture, the West, is in this state of transition Hmm. um, that we're in between two eras. And it's, I mean, it should be unsurprising, I suppose, that we're seeing this happen in the church as well. Um, So, yeah, that was, sorry, just an observation that Mm. I was thinking of. Yeah. Mm. What about you, Daniel? Mm, I think I've just been encouraged by just the the stories that that we're hearing, mm. um, the testimony um, of yeah, just faithful people that have walked with Jesus for for years mm. um, that are just encountering Him mm. in uh, in a new and a fresh way, and there's yeah. a there's a stirring that they haven't felt before and. It's not just a, it's not just like something that happened in their youth. It's something new. Mm. Um, it's something um, uh, we were just chatting about as a team before. This kind of call to repentance. It's not just a call to kind of not do the wrong thing and not sin. It's actually there's more to of of turning and walking the the opposite direction. Mm. And actually that that word like holiness and mm. surrender and obedience. Um, so there, there is that's re- we're seeing and hearing stories of renewal in the in the micro. Mm. Yes. But when you begin to see that happening across the church community, you go, yes. oh, yeah. there's something, there's something to this." And yeah. and I suppose in context of what's happening around the world and what we're seeing and hearing, it's ah so encouraging. Yeah. Um, and building building faith in our community for sure. Yeah. Well, one thing I noticed too, which is really really interesting, is it's not attached like the thing god's doing in the world doesn't seem to be attached to a big personality yeah Yeah. you know often there's a personality or a charismatic figure or a group of charismatic figures and i mean charismatic in the personality sense um but also too it's not necessarily like there is definitely the asbury thing but just being in london and also the messages we've received and talking to people we know it is happening everywhere Mm. you know it was interesting you know when i was in london some people sort of asking the question oh the asbury thing is this is this you know i was was having a really interesting chat to a gentleman from south africa about this um an event just after you know he sort of said you know often often you're seeing these things happen in africa is this is this getting like i guess more more coverage because it's in america and i think it's a really good question because you know america is obviously the most sort of powerful nation in the world and often gets attention but even hearing the stories of how this is happening in places like asia (laughs) thailand japan Mm -hmm. this thing you know this is not something that is is happening just in one place one country one leader and and what i'm really fascinated by as well is is not just happening at the big mega churches that are famous like actually almost what i'm noticing is it's happening at smaller churches, yeah. medium-sized churches, uh, churches that aren't super cool. It's really interesting. There's something so countercultural to this, to the spirit of the age that I think the church has been shaped by in the last little period. Mm. Um, and, you know, we had that a little bit. We had, you know, when Rob Lim came and, um, you know, shared with us, uh, we had our first service and, and it was it was very full and and – but then we had this our second service. So we planted a new service, 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. And so some people from our 11 have gone to the 6. So we knew it was going to be a little bit smaller, you know, if it sort of fills up. And, you know, the service began and I was talking to Britt, who's on our team, about this. And we were like, oh, it's a bit smaller today. We need to talk to me. You know, we planted out of this. You know, it's going to fill that space, et cetera, et cetera. 
But then we just were sort of almost like felt chastised <laughs> by the end because at the end we sort of just opened it up and I honestly felt like 85% of the people were down the front yeah. in the congregation sort of like praying and, and it went for an hour. Like there were people still there I think an hour and a half yeah. after the yeah. service had closed. Mm. And so I think my sort of brain of like, this is good because there's lots of people in the room got really challenged and that's shifting to me. It's gone from how many people in the room or how many you know butts on seats to how many people is the spirit moving in and are consecrating themselves mm. and giving themselves wholly to God. So I think there's a sort of changing of metrics that's at play and I'm, I'm looking forward to narrating that story as we yeah. sort of go forward from here. Yeah. The thing I noticed um, like hosting the services on Sunday and what I've sort of noticed over the last number of months is – there is a desire and willingness to dwell. Yes, yes. Um, which I haven't seen before. Yes. You know, when you're when you're up the front, you can see um, the congregation, and, and it's so it's these beautiful moments that are so humble and gentle, mm. which I think are very emblematic of what mm. um, what people have been sharing in their experiences across the world with mm. what God's up to. And and it's 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 interesting as well because I think like um lingering and I don't know if, I think I don't know if Rob said this in the in the service but but lingering there's something profoundly countercultural to it. Mm. Like, you know, there was almost this thing of like how do we shorten churches down, services down because people got to get to kids sport or this or that or we're busy, you know. Mm-hmm. And and there's an element of like, does that also speak of, you know, the fact that we're shrinking the place of him in our lives? Yeah. And I'm not saying here we have to do like 17-hour services or anything, but that there's something happening. And again, too, I think this is like, I think Pete Hughes, you know, who's from KXC uh, in London has you know, talked about, it. I think this is like spring rains. It's the first rains of something. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. new sprigs coming up that, you know, to see you know, one of the things I've, I've just tried to talk about is the lack of devotion is one of the things that's been harming the church in the West and there's been this double-mindedness. But to see people, many of them young people, lingering is just a really encouraging sign, lingering yeah. in Jesus' presence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's also been that that word of uh, like perseverance, like waiting yes. and persevering, mm-hmm. which I think is um, like in the same vein as, mm-hmm. um, as lingering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a yeah, and a waiting for his his presence and his move and his leading. Yeah, mm. as Rob said at the end, um, Aslan's on the move, mm-hmm. and I think that's a great great way of summarizing what's happening now. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, very much so. Yeah. Well, I look forward to continuing that yes. conversation. Yes, yes. Um, and again, I mean, we we said this uh, in an episode many months ago, but if you do have stories of what God is doing in your mm. um, setting, we'd love to hear about them. Mm. Um, yeah, and share them with others. It's yeah. so important to share what God is doing. Yeah. Um, all right, let's shift gears. What a segue we're about to engage in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Buckle up. It's like we're going 100 miles on the freeway and we're about to like, you know. Slam it into reverse. Yes, yeah. <laughs> pull the handbrake, fishtail, opposite direction. <laughs> Russia. Yeah. Big news. Big news. And big news not just for 
Russia, but you know, obviously, what happens in Russia has tremendous geopolitical implications. Um, Russia is the world's second largest holder of nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. and also one of the world's largest uh, oil and gas producers. Um, and as the Qatari, I think it was a Qatari foreign minister, tweeted in the midst of this crisis, that uh, you know, what could ha- this could have tremendous implications on the world: oil prices, energy prices. So. Uh, a future of Europe, you know, what happens in Russia is deeply connected to the geopolitical world we're in. And as you've learned on this podcast, that culture is downstream from geopolitics. Yes. So let's maybe start with uh, just the basics of what, yeah. what what's the update? Okay. So the reason I thought it'd be good to do this is obviously this is, this is a, a big thing in the news and part of what we do on Reboot is a as well as narrating what God's doing in the world, is also helping people analyze and interpret what's mm. happening in the world um, because it's often a confusing space out there. Um, so the first thing I just want to say is part of the reason I want to do this as well is that everyone is bamboozled by the events <laughs> of the last sort of what is it, 72 uh, hours or something. Mm. Um, so to go back to the beginning, um, so I'll say what happened over the weekend and then I'll go back to a bit of um, um, background, mm-hmm. is effectively uh, news uh, uh, around the world was captured by uh, the story that a private military company of mm-hmm. mercenaries, and I'll get into that, called Wagner, uh, being led by their oligarch uh, leader, uh, Yegevny Prigozhin, uh, was leaving the sort of front line in Ukraine and heading back towards into Russia uh, in a confrontation with the Ministry of Defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, they very quickly took the city of Rostov-on-Don, uh, which is a significant city. It was one of the sites of uh, one of the World Cup games. And uh, they quickly overtook that city and then continued in a convoy towards Moscow. The rhetoric changed as they headed towards Moscow. And uh, previously their sort of beef was with the officials of the basically Russian military, particularly the defense uh, chief, uh, Sergei Shoigu and Gerasimov, uh, who's the sort of head of the, the army. Um, but then it changed to Putin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and no one has challenged Putin that directly uh, uh, for years um, yep. and lived to tell the tale or not be imprisoned like Alexei Navalny. Um, so this was looking like it was heading towards a serious uh, potential of not just a coup, but really look more like a civil war. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, and there's a long history of civil war in Russia at various key historical moments. You know, you go back to uh, the Russian Revolution, 1917, which led into an extended civil war, um, which went for a number of years, sort of traversing the landmass of Russia. Um, and then uh, with the fall of the Soviet Union, there was, you know, almost a threat again um, uh, when parliament was shelled at the beginning of the 90s, I think it was 91. Um, uh, uh, and, um, you know, eventually Boris Yeltsin sort of emerged from that uh, sort of internal strife. Um, but what is interesting? Well, okay, let me go back. Look, Wagner, and then I'm going to say why this is interesting, not just about Russia, but I think there's a bigger interesting thing this is telling us about our world. So this is going to sure. get a, a bigger principle. So first of all, how on earth did this happen? So, you know, obviously Vladimir Putin, I think the listeners of this of this podcast will know that he is the ruler of Russia and has created what some have called a power vertical, which is a very strong grip on power. Mm. Part of that has been since the Soviet Union transitioned from being a communist state, uh, it ended into a period of wild capitalism where a lot of the uh, major industries were sort of taken over by various oligarchs. 
And in some ways to understand how power works in Russia, you can understand that Putin is sort of the boss of these various smaller bosses mm -hmm. um, over various industries. Uh, in 2014, um, Wagner, Wagner was created. And what Wagner is, is a, uh, a mercenary group. It's a private army. Okay. Um, and this is not just something that Russia created. Um, in the uh, Iraq war, the second uh, Gulf War, um, the US military um, realized, you know, that it was sort of making a transition and began to use private military contractors. That's what PMCs are called. And Dick Cheney, who's the vice president, um, you know, famously and, and quite suspiciously awarded a lot of the sort of contracts to his firm Halliburton. Mm -hmm. uh, but there was also another private military contractor uh, called Blackwater, uh, which are basically armed guys that are paid to do soldier-like stuff but are not part of a government's military. And to Eric Prince, who started Blackwater, um, you know, sort of started that. So doing a lot of security and and stuff that they didn't want soldiers. As armies, it's harder to get soldiers to volunteer and also to not do drafts. It's like privatization of war is what we're seeing. Okay. Mm -hmm. So famously, Eric Prince, um, I think, approached the White House, maybe during the Trump administration, actually said he was offering to privatize the war in Afghanistan mm. and just run it as mercenaries. Mercenaries have sort of been looked down upon in the last hundred years, although they're used often throughout history. Um, and Eric Prince went on to sort of create a private army of a lot of Colombian soldiers for the United Arab Emirates and its leader, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed. Um, so they're becoming more and more popular. Mm. But Wagner has probably been the most popular. Now, it is a private but also is deeply connected to the Russian state. Okay. Uh, so the former, former uh, FBI agent Ali Soufan runs this sort of think tank which looks at terrorism and stuff like this. And they did a large report on Wagner and said, you know, said basically it's an extension of the Russian state. Mm. So in a sense, uh, it gives the Russian state deni deniability um, to actually do things that they don't want blamed on themselves. Yes, okay. Now, again, before we just get into Russia bashing, uh, Blackwater has been accused of doing things sure. uh, for the Central Intelligence Agency uh, that the US government want to deny plausibility. So it's not just Russia which does this. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and... Uh, it was used, um, basically emerged out of the original sort of conflict in, in eastern Ukraine in the Donbass in 2014. It actually wasn't started by Prigozhin. It was actually started by a guy called Dmitry Utkin. Uh, not a nice bloke, I yeah, can right. say. <laughs> he is uh, a neo-Nazi and okay. um, is a neo-pagan um, and just a really nasty character. So in a sense, these are sort of hide thugs that the Kremlin can use for various sort of operations. They're also involved in some of the troll farms that began to, you know, be accused of various things from election interference to mm -hmm. online information warfare. Yeah. Um, and uh, they then got not just involved in Eastern Ukraine in 2014, but particularly their real footprint has been in Africa and all over Africa. So basically being a footprint of... Uh, doing things that the Russian state wants to happen in Africa. There's been, if you follow African politics at all, um, you've seen that there's been an increased pushback against sort of French presence in Africa. Yeah. And lots of countries which have formerly been, you know, former French colonies, Francophone yes. countries. Yeah. Um, all of a sudden you see these images on Twitter of people holding up Russian flags and tearing down the French flag. Oh, interesting. And so in some ways this is being used by the Russian state to push back on Western influence in Africa. Yeah. Uh, but also in Syria as well. One mm -hmm. of the pivots that Putin did was to move into Syria. And as the US, uh, Obama made a pivot away from the Middle East towards Asia 
is that it gave an opportunity for Russia to have more of a footprint. And so um, the dictator of Syria, Assad, um, basically Wagner has been a bit of a force that is used. But also in places like Central African Republic, they attempted to quash a coup in Mozambique. Um, So really it's been this force used in the world. Um, And then particularly when the war in Ukraine started, it came back to be a fighting force. And particularly in battles like Bakhmut, it has been – connected to the Russian army, but also a little bit separate from it. And this yeah. is where the problems yeah. begin. So you gave me Prigozhin, again, to a character um, you almost sort of couldn't make up. Uh, when, as I said, Russia, when it, it stopped communism, there was this period where different people grabbed different industries. He started as a hot dog. Well, he was in prison, came with the Russian prison system, so linked to crime. Started as a hot dog seller in St. Petersburg. Uh, but grew that into a restaurant business and a very sort of uh, expensive restaurant that he had on the water in St. Petersburg. So that's where Putin's from. So a lot of the St. St. Petersburg elite enabled him to get close to them Uh and get to get close to Putin. So state dinners with, I think, the Japanese president and or prime minister and uh, uh, George W. Bush were at this restaurant. Putin would take them there. So Prigozhin was sort of the one serving the food. So you can see these photos of him with George uh, W. Bush. So this uh, enabled him to get close to Putin and then he was awarded a whole bunch of like contracts around food like for schools and the army and stuff like this and became an oligarch really providing Mm. catering services. But then he was given Wagner to sort of build up. Uh, But effectively, as the war in Ukraine began, uh, a lot of these sort of more extreme. So what a lot of people don't realise is in Russia, the Russian opposition, uh, there is a small – uh, you know, Russian opposition who may be liberal or to the left of Putin, but most of the opposition is actually to the right of Putin. So mm. actually Putin is moderate compared to uh, many of those on the right. And there's sort of like some people call them the turbo patriots or, the you know, the further on the Russian right. They were, they were sort of excited when the Ukraine war began, but then increasingly they've become frustrated as the wars faltered and particularly Ukraine made um, a sort of pushback, pushing the Russian forces back. And so a lot of the blame's gone against the, the Ministry of Defense and, and Shoigu in particular is the head of the, uh, the, uh, the defense chief, not a military guy, came out of emergency services. So they sort of blamed him. He's also not ethnically Russian. He's Tuvan, which is a Mongol people. So this has just been brewing on social media and been brewing and brewing and brewing until it all exploded in this uh, uh, sort of like – Internal, so almost in some ways, Wagner uh, uh, has been like a private military. It's Frankenstein's monster that then attacks Frankenstein's. So that's the background. But what I find interesting, and this is where I think it's interesting that it, it tells us something about our world at the moment. So uh, Prigozhin has been threatening Gerasimov and Shoigu for ages, and all of the experts inside Russia, outside Russia, are sort of been like, ah, oh, this is all just talk. You got to realize these guys are a bit crazy. This is sort of like prison, you know, tough guy contests. Uh, they're not going to do anything. And there had been some few skirmishes between Wagner units and um, sort of the Russian military. Um, so when he actually attacked, everyone got taken by surprise. Mm. So all of the predictions were fundamentally wrong that Prigozhin was not going to follow through on this. No one thought he would leave the front and attack. So basically you saw all of these people who were making predictions that this was all talk, all of a sudden having to walk back their predictions. It was, it was a stunning to see this in the media on Twitter and all these places. Um, then as uh, he very quickly took Rostov on Don, which again to all of the uh, sort of experts thought the Russian military would make, you know, quick sort of mincemeat of the Wagner forces, 
Uh, you then saw him continue on to Moscow and then it flipped from he's not going to do anything to Russia's going to collapse, Putin's going to collapse, there's a civil war coming, this is insane, get ready, he's going to grab nukes, all this sort of talk. And then to everyone's surprise again, the unpredictable happened and he turned around and went home. <laughs> and then what you've seen is, and this has been remarkable, literally like this morning, I, I, think, it was, I think it was yesterday I woke to – a gazillion Twitter threads from various experts, mm. <laughs> all trying to piece together what on earth happened in Russia. And no one has a clue. So basically what happened was uh, Putin came out and said that he was going to sort of prosecute uh, Prigozhin and strike down Wagner. And they started actually bombing uh, the Russian Air Force, started bombing the convoy. And, uh, you know, like everyone's like, there's no way he's going to back down. Putin wouldn't back down. Now it'll make him look weak. Then the, again, at, at, you know, enter stage left, the surprise figure of Lukashenko, who's the dictator of Belarus, who looks super weak, according to many of the analysts, after he was almost deposed in sort of, you know, public protests and was seen as the weak partner to Putin. He swans in and sort of does this deal, supposedly, between Prigozhin and Putin, and which you know, uh, Prigozhin's going to head to Belarus and sort of hang out there. And uh, everyone's like, just forget about it. It was like this weird thing. We're going to prosecute you. We're going to take you out. Forget about it. It's like nothing happened. Um, and it has just taken the entire commentary class by surprise. I'll pause there. If you guys have got any questions, because I just spoke for about five minutes on lots of <laughs> I stuff. I mean, it here. was impressive. Um, it, it, like the predictability, right? That was, yes. I feel like that was happening where, back in the day when um, Putin was originally, you know, threatening to invade yes. Ukraine. And yes. there were, there yes. were a whole host of people being like, oh, it's not going to do it. He's just posturing, you know. Yes, including um, me. Yes. <laughs> yes, yeah. on this podcast. Um, yeah. And then, you know. The history books are yes. written the way they are now. Um, yeah, so it, it feels like this is this is the nature of unpredictability yes. of geopolitics at the moment. Yes, particularly with Russia. So I think I think this like in thinking about this and thinking about how I talk about this is you know I'm not even going to so that you got every kind of possibility being trotted out at the moment. That number one, Putin's very weak now, and that Prigozhin's like. Yeah, he's backed off, but he's shown how brittle the Russian state is. To other people saying, well, this has shown how strong Putin is. You know, Prigozhin's broke down and actually all the people who are disloyal have shown their heads. And what a master move by Putin. You literally saw, I think it's Kofler, she's a former CIA analyst, was on Fox News this morning saying this is all part of a massive master plan hmm. uh, that, um, uh, you know, they're secretly moving Wagner troops into Belarus because then they're just really close to Kiev and they can invade from, you know, create this northern front. Uh, you know, so it's everything from Putin's weak to Putin's the master strategist to Prigozhin's a dead man to Prigozhin's now stronger. Like every single possibility has been trotted out. Uh, the CIA came out and basically said that they'd known about this for a couple of weeks. They didn't share the intelligence with anyone. I mean, is that true? You know, it's like, is everyone just trying to cover their butts here uh, because no one knew anything? And mm. there, there's a so so to help us think about this, and I want to introduce a broader concept. Um, the British scientist and network theorist and cybertician uh, Ross Ashby in 1956, which I knew is where everyone knew where I was going uh, yeah, with that. Yeah, Everyone's like, he's going to talk about Ross Ashby. Ugh. I actually knew that because you told me I before, tell you that but earlier. otherwise, I was preparing you no for this idea pivot. who. Um, Ross. Ross Ashby um, uh, uh, was one of the first thinkers to think about the world that we now inhabit. Mm. 
uh, we talked about cybernetics, which is really the science which, in a sense, laid the groundwork for the internet age in which we live, network uh, age in which we live, uh, along with probably Norbert Weiner is the um, more famous uh, uh, scientist who, who sort of set that world out. But Ashby uh, went a little bit ahead of him. And he talked about a number of things, but one thing he's talked about in a sort of a networked world is the concept of a thing called the black box. Mm. Now, to understand up to this point how particularly people uh, in the West have thought about the world, it's through the prism of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment is that we must understand everything. We can take apart everything. And once we understand all the composite parts and understand how everything works, then we can proceed forward and operate in the world with confidence. Mm. Um, But Ashby, in a sense, turned that on its head. He essentially said that there's going to be these things like black boxes where you can see the inputs going in, you can see the inputs going out, you can see what they do, but you have no idea what's going on inside the black box and how it works. Uh, one of the things that the cyberticians uh, uh, predicted was computers would be the ultimate black box. Uh, Daniel is Daniel is smart on tech, um, so he is currently typing into a laptop. Uh, and he probably has more idea than you and I, Liddy, on what is going on inside these black boxes. Uh, but ultimately we use these computers all the time. We have no idea what's going on inside of them. Mm. I have no idea what's going on in my phone. I can send an email on my phone. I can text you guys. I can ring. I can play a song on Spotify. I have no idea what on earth goes on inside that thing. If you, mm. if you ask me to put one back together, no idea. And this is an increasingly, I think, a metaphor for the world in which we live. Russia is a black box. Mm. And one of the things that the social contract of our current regimes of power that exist in the West have said in some ways, the social contract, which is we will rule you because we will do this for you, is that we are smart and we understand how the world works and we have intelligence and data which shows us how the world works. Mm. And therefore, we are the best experts to be in control. Well, I think what Russia has shown us now twice in, what is it, 18 months, is that the expert class does not always understand how the world works. And there are many black boxes in the world. We have no idea what's going on in Russia at the moment. Really interesting little tidbit that very few people noticed was that we had the Discord leaks. Uh, I don't know if that's happened since we last were podcasting, where a National Guardsman, young guy, was basically releasing all these US state secrets on uh, a Discord channel, like a mm-hmm. gaming channel, I think it was. You know, all these state secrets, like heaps of them. And it's one of the biggest intelligence leaks. And he wasn't doing a sort of Edward Snowden, le- you know, leaking it for some sort of noble cause. He just sort of showing off to his mates yeah. on some Discord channel. Uh, now, they've revealed a lot of things um, and everyone's pretty sure that they're, they're verifiable and they're genuine state secrets. One of the things it says is that Prigozhin was secretly talking to the Ukrainian intelligence services. And that they actually had these multiple channels going on. Hmm. Another bizarre thing, as I mentioned, Eric Prince, who ran Blackwater, uh, well, The Intercept reported in 2020 that Eric Prince had actually approached Wagner to work together. So you've got someone who's very much tied. Eric Prince is a donor and was very much tied to, uh, you know, US politics and, hmm. and influential. <clears throat> you've got these back channels. We've got these private military contractors. It's so murky, this world. And, and it's, we have no idea what's actually going on inside Russia. We have no idea what's actually going on inside China, you know, and, and actually probably we don't have a lot of idea what's happening inside places like Congress and, and these giant investment firms like BlackRock and, and Vanguard who are hugely influential in the world. We've got no idea what's going on inside these places. 
So we increasingly live in a world where we know less and less. Mm. And that challenges, I think, many of our assumptions that we can just educate ourselves well, move forward and have confidence and be the radical individual who can sort of understand what's going on in the world. Actually, what it does is it puts you in, there's a room where there's a really important meetings happening that affect your life and you can't get in. You haven't got the security code. Yep. Um, That's effectively what this means. And I think that doesn't just mean that for us as individuals, we're small people, but also it means for many of the people who think they're important, they don't really know what's going on. So I think this actually is an increasingly escalating dynamic that we're seeing in the world where the social contract that's been promised to us by our regimes of power is actually starting to fray where we're going to increasingly have to take a more humble tone that most people have taken throughout history And I just think it's another piece in the sort of Jenga tower that has been constructed where people are going to start to question the big stories of what's going on and then they're going to ask for bigger stories. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, as I've said before, secularism is structural. Part of secularism is linked to the social contract that our governments and our regimes and those who are in power basically say, we can say this is what reality looks like for you. But increasingly that's being challenged. So I think that I think that that's a really important point and trend line to continue to watch as we go forward. That increasingly we're going to see a world which is unpredictable, and as the world becomes more uncertain and unpredictable, not for everyone, but for many people, that begins to open the doorway to questions of faith and what is going on really, and the sort of existential questions that were dampened, I think, Mm. by regimes which said, we've got everything, we can explain it all for you, and we're going to provide everything all for you. That crack is beginning to appear, and so the world looks more risky and uncertain, but there's actually an opportunity for the church in that, and there's an evangelistic door that is continuing to creak open, and I think we've been narrating that on this podcast. There's another On this podcast, that's another example of that. And I think it's interesting... Pulling together what we're talking about at the beginning of the episode yes. about what God is doing um, or seems to be doing in the church, and that it is a humble move. Yes. So it, it feels like those two things that, yes. that what you're saying there about we're needing to come to this place of humility because we realize that we we do not understand or can't understand the way this world is going and what is happening. It brings us to our knees. Yeah. Um, so. And, and God's doing that with the church mm. as well. So it's kind of this totally. narrative that's going along. And, and I go back to that conversation I mentioned earlier, I was having with that guy from South Africa, who was sort of asking the question, which is such a, is a really good question we need to ask. The Asbury thing, a lot of coverage, you know, all the major networks turned up there, mm. yet there's events like that often happening in Africa and, yeah, and you know, around the world. And, and so why? Why is this important? I think the answer is, God speaks to us through something like Asbury because maybe a large part of the church thought stuff like that can't happen in the secular West Mm. underneath these regimes of power which shape reality for us because we actually partially bought the secular lie. So we will go, of course it's going to happen in Africa and there's some massive praise event happening in Nigeria or something. But less likely to think it's going to happen in a Western country and maybe even for us in Australia or if you're listening in Norway or New Zealand or Canada or, or Germany or Spain that maybe we can still go, oh, it's America, but it's not yeah, here, yeah, yeah. you know. And so I think that partially what God is doing is that that story, you know, I saw, I saw an interview, like it came up on social media, like Robbie Williams, 
because um, everyone knew we're going to go from Russia, <laughs> Ross Ashby to Robbie Williams, you know. Yeah. And and you're seeing a lot of celebrities actually almost doing this at this point in time. He basically said he's sort of like it was he was on a UFO podcast. He's mm-hmm. gotten big into UFOs. And he was just sort of saying like how increasingly over the last sort of few years he's just stopped believing all the big stories mm. that the media tell him. And he doesn't believe them anymore. He's just literally thinking he's just become questioning everything and like the, the, the narrative breakdown has occurred for him. And now he's just like, oh, they're like, well, what do you do now? He's sort of like, I just love my family and just try and keep my world very small. Mm. And that, look, that's Robbie Williams. But I think that's a lot of people. And there's a dangerous side to that because mm. then people can swallow all kinds of things. Like the guy's going to have to skinwalk a ranch and chasing UFOs and whatever. But also there's going to be a bunch of other people who are going to turn up to church who you're not expecting to turn up to church. Yeah. And I think we've been conditioned that very sort of developed world – uh, sophisticated people are not going to turn up to church because that was sort of their narrative for sort of 20 years. But I think that you're seeing more and more people question the narrative. If you're seeing sort of stars and, and famous people like Robbie, Robbie Williams do that, uh, there's ordinary people doing that and we mm. need to be attuned that the narrative is starting to break down somewhat. Yeah. It's, it's almost, well, I know for me it's been this like challenge of belief. Like do I believe that mm. God does want to move and am yes. I willing to break apart all of these expectations that I have constructed or I've taken on mm. um, to allow him to move in the way that yeah. he will and, and keep my eyes out for when, you know, the person who's serving me coffee wants to have a conversation. Yes, yes. You know, totally. Um, yeah, it's what are we believing of God and what he wants to do. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm willing cha- to let him do it. Totally. It's a challenge to see that, you know, I've talked about this before and I'll keep I'll keep talking about it. You know, it's the George Hunter principle. Be, look for the gap between idols. Yes. That gap between idols is increasing. It's only going to be open for a period before the next thing comes in, you know. Yeah. And um that's a huge advantage. We need we need to be aware of that and uh attuned to that. And what if this move of God that he's doing, this humble move of God, is actually prepare us for that opportunity. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, you know, for what's to come. I think I think we're at the beginning of it, you know. And maybe it's not like some big moment which energizes the church and they'll come together and it sort of peters away after a few years. What if this is actually an energizing or empowering is a better word, empowering by the Holy Spirit for the next period that we're all going to live in. Mm. That's going to look very different mm. from the period we were just in. Mm. Hmm. Just another thought that's kind of going on over here. Just you were talking when you're talking about Russia and the, the the black box, and you've got all these people trying to predict what's going to happen. This I've kind of got this parallel thought of: Have we tried to do that with God mm. as well? Like mm. I think of Isaiah 55. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking the same. Um, for my thoughts and not your thoughts yeah. and my ways. Like, have we? Have has it been a as a, a season of the church where we've tried to? work God out and this is this part of the kind of enlightenment mm. move mm. and is there an invitation into the, back into the mystery of God mm. um, into encountering him not intellectually mm. um, but into the deeper mm. um, majesty and sovereignty and mm. and yeah, mystery wonder yeah. of him yeah again um, and and, and- mm. That's a great point. Byung Chul Han in his book Info Infocracy. Info Infocracy. It's a little bit like that. Infocracy. Infocracy. Infocracy yeah, is yeah. basically what it is. The Korean German philosopher. He talks about uh, that 
I think he talks about black boxes in that and, and he talks about that the temple in um, ancient Greece, there was this sort of secret place where the high priest went and dealt with the mm. hidden knowledge. Yes. And a lot of temples had that. And at the Jerusalem temple, there was the place which was the holiest of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was and the priest would go in and, and, and you know, on the Day of Atonement. But what's really interesting is, um, and that's the world now, there is, there is that secret sanctum of the initiated elite. And mm. it's not so much magic. magic what, what is magic? Magic is information, knowing the secret knowledge and the information. Yep. Somewhere in the world at the moment, somewhere in the Russian Ministry of Defense or Wagner HQ or whatever, Putin and, and you know, his, his, his people, someone knows what's going on really. At Langley in the CIA, have got more idea of what's going on. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, somewhere at the the headquarters of Blackstone and and Vanguard and JP Morgan, they know what's happening with the global economy in ways that we don't. So there's secret meetings. People know stuff that we don't know. That's almost like the inner parts of a temple. You know, and yeah. they're almost like the the secret elevated priesthood. And the one thing about Gnosticism and magic and paganism is that often it's a it's a it's a cabal of the elite. So a lot of conspiracy theories very rudimentarily try and get at this truth, and they imagine that you know there's the World Economic Forum are sort of planning for us to all sort of be dog robots or something. I don't know why I added dog there, you know. <laughs> um, and I think what that, that's a very rudimentary way to get at an actual dynamic happens in the world that there are elites and they have power, and part of power is knowing about information, you know. And Google, think about Google is powerful because it has aggregated so much information in the world. Yeah. So we've got these black boxes. AI is a black box, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Like there's half the people going, "This is going to be amazing." There's all these like social media media posts like here's the 10 things how AI chat GPT can help you become an entrepreneur or a social media star and then you got other people like bomb the data centers it's going to kill everyone you know it's like it's a black box we don't know what's going to happen so in a sense that's the like our world is a temple and there is some hidden realm somewhere of people who are smarter than us have more access than us and more information than us but you think about what happens when Jesus dies on the cross. Mm. The curtain in the temple separating yes. the whole so ripped from top to bottom. Mm. And what that says now is that ordinary people, mm. ordinary people, someone who's a Kenyan coffee farmer in a small village has access to Jesus. There is no hidden initiates mm. who are powerful. That actually it's the upside down kingdom uh, that's, the knowledge about God is not hidden. It's it's an in a new beginning called it's an open secret. So there's this sense that those who who believe and how humble have access to that. So the way to this is not to, you know, go and just schmooze and be a trillionaire at Davos or to work your way up to the head of an intelligence agency or to be a president, a king, a prime minister. It's actually to bend your knee to Christ, to humble, to repent, believe the good news, and you have access to the ways of heaven. Mm. Well, I think that's a great point to end on. Uh, Thank you for joining us again today for Rebuilders. We uh, pray that it has been a helpful conversation in understanding the things that are happening geopolitically, but also some insights into what's happening spiritually across the world in God's people. Um, Let's keep praying for more. Mm. Uh, If you want to know more um, about the resources or um, the authors that were mentioned during this episode, we do a subscriber chat uh, mail out so you can join our subscriber list by heading to rebuilders.co and we usually send that out a number of days after the episode is released so you can you can sign up we would love to have you on board 